Our text for this Lord's Day is Luke chapter 16, continuing our study in Luke's gospel. Hear now God's holy word. He also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debts to him, and he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? So he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we are uh, so thankful and so appreciative of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for his wisdom, for every word that came from his lips. And we're grateful and thankful to you and your Holy Spirit for preserving every one of these words. Now we need your Holy Spirit to help us to receive these words and to understand them clearly and to apply them rightly. So Father, now we depend upon your Spirit to guide us through this text as we study this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you kind of a personal question to start off today. Uh, maybe uncomfortable with this question, that's all right. Are you rich? I mean, could you say, yeah, I'm, I'm wealthy? Is that, are those terms you use to describe yourself? Are you rich? Are you wealthy? Are you well-to-do? Are you, are you affluent? Now, most of you, if I ask you just that blunt question, are you rich? I bet you would answer, no, I'm not rich. My last name isn't Gates, my last name isn't Buffett, my last name isn't Zuckerberg, I'm not one of those guys. I have bills, I have debt, I have monthly uh, commitments, and some months things get pretty tight. I've got a van with 150,000 miles on it. Do I look rich to you? You know, I, I don't light my cigars with $100 bills. I'm not, I'm not rich. And I hear you, I hear you. But you know, when you compare your life to the rest of the world today, or when you compare your life to the lives of everyone who lived in the first 5,900 years of human history, you, and I'm saying this to every one of you from the oldest to the youngest, you are unbelievably, astronomically, incredibly wealthy. You are so rich. You are so wealthy and comfortable. If your family makes more than $30,000 a year, you know that you're in the top one 
to one and a half percent of everyone living in the world today. If your household brings in $30,000 a year, uh, so you know when, you, when everybody charges Wall Street and screams about the one percent, you know, that's you. You're, you're the one percent. You're the one percent of the world. The change in your car console and the change in the jar on your dresser at home is more than the total wealth of 50% of the world's population. One billion people in the world today live on less than a buck 25 a day. That's, that's incredible. That means when you go to buy a cup of coffee, you're spending more money than one billion people live on today. Uh, but it's an error to think of wealth only in terms of, of money. Technology is also wealth. Information is wealth. Leisure is wealth. The, the ability to do what I want to with my time and not spend every waking hour of the day working just so that I can eat that night. That's wealth. Leisure is wealth. Consider also how your ancestors lived uh, more than 200 years ago. None of them had running water. None of them had indoor plumbing. They might have had fine houses but none of them had electricity. None of them had cars or phones or computers or smartphones for that matter. You, you have more computing power in your pocket and more access to information than anybody has ever had in the history of the world. It's unbelievable access. What book do you want? I can either have it on your doorstep in two days or I can probably download it and start reading it to you right now. You, you wanna name a song? Give me 30 seconds, we can start listening to it. Any song, it doesn't matter, any song in the history of the world that's ever been recorded. Is there a movie or a TV show that you, that you wanna watch? I've got it, we can get it right now. If, if not right now, in a couple days, we can, we can have this. Uh, that's, that's unbelievable wealth of information and technology. King Solomon didn't have a smartphone. Just imagine what he could have come up with if he had a smartphone. King Herod didn't have a Honda minivan. Just think of how he could have ruled the world with just a Honda minivan in the first century. So the point is, it's undeniable. No matter how you and I look at it, you and I are unbelievably wealthy. So when the prophets in the scriptures level their warnings against rich men, when Jesus tells parables about the sins of the wealthy and the sins of rich men, are you more likely to take that personally? Or do you think, well, I'm not Bill Gates, so it doesn't apply to me. I'm, I'm not in that category. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the target of that. Do you, do you take that personally? Or do you automatically think that that's talking about somebody else. I'm not rich. Now, now, this is a challenge, and it requires us to shift our mindsets considerably. But given the fact that we are right now the wealthiest people in the world, and on top of that, we're the wealthiest people to ever live in all of human history, we must read the cautions about the temptations of wealth as if they were speaking to us. Because, you know, they are. We are the rich, we are the wealthy. And so when God delivers sober warnings in the scriptures about, about all the sins that attend wealth, he's talking to us and he's talking about us. And it's evident that you and I can fall into the very same temptations and the very same wicked behaviors that Jesus and the prophets warn about. For example, right off the bat, instead of being content and at rest, and, and, and instead of being uh, at peace in all of God's blessings, we are the most anxious 
and fearful and worried people also. So, so here's, here's the two crowns we wear. We are the wealthiest people in the world that, that the world has ever seen, and we're also the most anxious and fearful and discontent people that the world has ever seen. And you know what? Those two things go together. That's one of the temptations of wealth is that we are terrified that we're going to lose what we have or we're not going to be able to add to what we have or our kids are not going to be able to add to what we have or our kids are not going to have what we have. In addition to that, we view wealth as, a, as an insulation against calamity. You, you get to the point where you're convinced that no crisis is too great for you. You can spend your way out of any crisis or you have the insurance and uh, you're, you're covered. You can spend your way out of anything. And that starts to make us believe that we can get away with just about anything. We start to believe that we're invincible. The, the prophets Amos and Hosea, they admonish the wealthy for the way that they treat people like possessions. The rich, Hosea and Amos say, depersonalize people and exploit them. They buy and they sell people, manipulating people with their wealth. They take advantage of women and children. This is from Amos 2. Listen to what Amos says. The wealthy, they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor. It's like a, a poor man has a dirty head and the rich man says, ah, oh, that's my dirt. Get that dirt off your head. And, and they pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. And, and so for the wealthy, as far as Amos and Hosea are concerned, people to the wealthy are just vessels of pleasure. They're just something else to manipulate, something else to buy and sell and use. The chief, the chief temptation of riches is to mismanage the good gifts that God gives us, to be poured stewards of the blessings, to, to worship the created thing more than the creator, and to start to believe that our wealth is all the proof that we need of our righteousness and our favored status before God. And, and if somebody doesn't have the same blessings we do, well, it's all the proof we need that they're not favored by God. Now, in this culture, we have all inherited a mostly Christian attitude about wealth and power. That's going away every day, and it feels like it's slipping away faster and faster all the time. But we still have kind of this Christian hangover. Uh, and, and even those in our culture who are not Christians uh, still live in this hangover of Christendom. But the ancient world was far, far different. Pagan views on money and pagan views on possessions and power dominated the society. When Jesus comes to Israel, he comes to an Israel that's been paganized and everything is corrupt about the way they view power and money and possessions. And Jesus is on a mission to introduce a new way of living, which means a new way of possessing, a new, a new way of owning, a new way of giving thanks for the good things God has, has given them. And, and so Jesus never, he, he, he never lambasts prophets. Jesus never says prophets are obscene or that, or that uh, wealth is shameful or bad. Uh, in fact, we could argue that hard work and industry are only possible because of the gospel and it's, it's the way it's permeated our culture. That good things and wealth and economy flourish under the gospel. So, so Jesus never says that, that every, you know, this, this, uh, 
ability to take care of your family or to sell things for a profit and, and earn and, and, and grow something good. He never says that that's awful. What he does bring is saying this, this is a new way of managing. I have a new way of possessing. I have a new way of ruling. And that's what the message of the kingdom is. The kingdom of God is a new way of organizing humanity under Jesus as Lord. And that includes everything. That includes economy and uh, uh, education and science and and everything. The, the, The kingdom of God is the new civilization of God, the new culture that Jesus is is bringing in. And so part of this kingdom, obviously, as I said, is wealth and riches and and stewardship. And this theme runs through Luke chapter 16. In this chapter, we begin with one of the most probably misunderstood and, and disagreed upon parables in all of Luke, at least, if not all of the Gospels. I read maybe six different interpretations of this parable this week, and I didn't agree with any of them completely. So it begins with this, this parable of the unjust steward that I'll, I promise to give you the right interpretation of today. I promise to give you the perfect. It's, it's, you'll find different interpretations of it. I'll give you one uh, for your consideration, and, uh, and we'll do the best we can with that. So it begins with that one, and it ends with one of the most well-known parables, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, next to, next to the parable of the prodigal son. It's one of the best best known. But, but through, these, through these parables and his teaching in between run this theme of money and riches and stewardship. And, and in the first parable, he's speaking to his disciples and then the Pharisees start chirping. This is always going on in Luke. And it, it kind of hit, hit me between the eyes this week that, that Jesus will start teaching his disciples and the Pharisees will ask a question. And then he'll start answering the Pharisees and his disciples will respond with something. And so Jesus is always keeping these two audiences uh, in tension the whole time. And we have to keep track of who he's talking to, who's asking the questions, and who he's talking about. And remember also what complicates this is that the parables were not always intended to be easy to understand. In fact, in many of the parables, Jesus is obscuring truth so that wicked men couldn't take and twist the things that he's saying. He's speaking to his disciples, and he comes back later and explains some things and, and colors in uh, the lines a little bit more. But the parables are all designed to make you think. And so we always read these parables first understanding that he's speaking to those people standing there with them. That's, that's the primary application. That's the primary audience. So, so when Jesus comes and when he tells this parable that I read just a few minutes ago of the unjust steward, what's going on with Jesus's ministry? What's going on in the first century? Well, you know this, as we've talked about it all through Advent, the world is changing. The world is about to change dramatically. The old is passing away. The new world is coming into existence through Jesus and the church. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's what Jesus comes proclaiming. The kingdom of God is near. It is, it is here. And this passage, this parable, has to do with that shift. Will those rulers and stewards of the old world Will they make the transition? Will they make the trip over into the new world? Or will they be fired? Will they be discharged of their duties? And will new rulers be set up for the the new world? See, those stewards of the old world, the 
lawyers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the the various uh, rulers of the synagogues. They want what Jesus is bringing. They want the new world. They want to dwell in the tents of the age that is coming. And that's a phrase that Jesus uses in in this parable. This is what they're hoping for and this is what they're looking for. They're desiring to inherit the kingdom. And so this is the context of the continuing controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees and the leaders. The Lord is calling the stewards of the old world to account, and he's firing them because of their dishonesty and their mistreatment of the things that God has entrusted to them. The wealth of the old age, the law, the prophets, the temple, the sacrifices, the laws of cleanness, all of this, the Psalms, all of this he has entrusted to them, and they've wasted it. They've they've abused it. So in this parable, we hear about a rich man who has stewards to manage his estates and possessions. Now, I I think this rich man in the parable, I believe it is Yahweh, God of Israel. The steward he calls to account uh, and to, and to, to give an account before him, he stands for the leaders of Israel. The steward in the parable They're the scribes, the priests, the Pharisees, the lawyers, all the rulers, and and they've been given a charge. They've been given a stewardship. They're to be the caretakers. They've been given all these riches of the Lord to manage in the old world, and they're being called to account through the ministry of Jesus. And they have all been unfaithful to their calling. They have all wasted what God has given them. That's what this parable teaches. So the master hears that his steward, steward is unjust, that he has wasted. Now, we just heard that word last week in our parable last week in the parable of the prodigal son. They have been uh, prodigal with the riches that, that God has, has delivered them. And so the master hears that the steward is unjust. He calls him to give account, and the steward now has to think what he must do. I'm getting fired, and he says, I can't dig, and I'm too proud to beg. What am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this situation? The debtors in the parable are the people of Israel who have been cheated and who have been plundered by their leaders. They have been burdened by the stewards. They are miserable and they are poor and there are great burdens that have been laid upon them. And the question here in this parable that Jesus puts before the leaders of of the old world in the presence of his, his disciples, he asks them this question, what will you do now when God calls you to give account and the new world comes into existence? Where will you be? What will you do? Will you be wise? Will you be shrewd about this situation? Or will you continue to be wasteful and foolish? The stewards, again, have squandered the position, the, the possessions of the rich man, just like the prodigal son squandered his father's inheritance. And now, even in this parable, there's this little hint. There's this hope. There's this chance that they're going to repent and turn around just like the prodigal son did. And if they do, they'll find the same forgiveness and restoration that he does. Well, the master in the parable says, what is this I hear about you? What's going on? You've been wasting my my riches. You've you've been unfaithful with what I've given you to watch over. Just as God hears the cries of his people. God heard the cries of his people in Egypt. God hears the Psalms. God hears the cries of the martyrs and he responds. So, So the master says, I've heard. What is this I hear? I've heard some bad things. And the master says to the steward, he says, get all your files together and turn them in. Get all your records together because you're fired. You're done. I'm done with you. And the steward thinks, now what am I going to do? When I'm removed from management, what can I do so that people will receive me into their homes? And so the steward starts to respond to the crisis in a way that is faithful and a way that is right. 
the previously dishonest and unjust manager needs to work out a way that he's going to be received into the homes of people that he has abused formerly. So what does he do? He reduces their debt. He says, come here, what, what, what do you owe me? And they say 100. He says, take out the bill and write down 50. And he says to another man, what do you, what do you owe me? I owe you 100. Take out the bill, scribble it out, and write 80. So he goes around and he starts discharging and reducing the debts of all those who owed his master money. And he, he's actually uh, reducing the debts likely down to what is actually owed. Uh, his unjust behavior very likely was to add interest, to add usury in order to line his own pockets, just as Israel has been abused by the mismanagement of the unrighteous stewards that they've had over them. And Jesus had earlier condemned the Jewish leaders for this very thing. Back in Luke 11, Jesus says, "'Woe to you lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. This is, what, this is what the rulers of the old age were doing. They were burdening the people with extra debts. They were adding charges and, and carrying charges and interests and, and usury to, uh, to the law and, and, and extending the things that God required. The burdens that the Pharisees laid on men had real financial consequences. They, they abused the poor and the widows, and this is something that Jesus gets onto them over and over and over about. And when he sees, when Jesus sees the widow put her might into the temple treasury, that's what sets him off, isn't it? That's, that's when things get serious. When Jesus sees what this widow, how she is, is, is being faithful in the system that is so full of corruption that the Pharisees have set up. And then, and then things heat up at, at that point. This is the burdens of the Pharisees uh, were, were uh, real and heavy, just as real as these debts were. The religious leaders robbed the people of God by teaching lies as the word of God. The multiplication of these laws of uncleanness went way beyond the Old Testament law. And what they would do is if you were unclean, you had to come to them and they would charge you to be, to be restored and to be cleansed. And they would line their pockets with the, with the money of the people. And so it's fitting that the way that this steward is faithful is he starts discharging the debts. He starts reducing the debts of the people who owe his master. He releases them from unjust burdens. What this steward does in this parable is what Jesus does throughout his ministry. Jesus is freeing people from unjust, oppressive burdens. And Jesus always does this in the face of the Pharisees. He doesn't do it in some dark corner. This is why the Pharisees hate him so much. It's because he does these things right in the middle of the synagogue, things they can't do. The steward in the parable is acting just like Jesus. And if the Pharisees and the lawyers and the rulers of the, of the synagogues would act like Jesus too, they will secure dwelling places in the new world when the old world starts to crash down around them. So the rich man calls his, his steward back and he commends him and he says, you've done, a, you've done a good job. You've been shrewd and you've been wise. And the message to the audience of Jesus is clear. You haven't been faithful with the riches of the old world. So you're not going to be entrusted to the, with the riches of the new world. You've turned your wealth into an idol, and that has disqualified you from being uh, 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 stewards of the new age unless you repent. So rather than these lawyers and Pharisees and rulers of the synagogues, Jesus is now calling uh, fishermen and tax collectors 
to be his apostles. And, and the people who follow him as his disciples are the formerly demon-possessed and, and those who have been lame and outcasts of society. And this is what Jesus, these are the, these are the stewards of the new age. And that's what also drives the Pharisees crazy. But these arrogant, stiff-necked men, they hear this parable and then they scoff. They hear this and they, they click their tongue and they roll their eyes and they mock Jesus. Let's pick up at verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, this is a theme all the way throughout this chapter. This is why Jesus is teaching them these things because we know they were lovers of money. They also heard all these things and they derided him. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is abomination, is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Luke identifies them as lovers of money. That's why they protest Jesus' teaching here. They mock and ridicule. So Jesus opens up with three volleys, just one right after another. It's just like he rolls the cannon up and he, and he fires one, two, three, and, and he, he rips right through them. Uh, first, he says, you know, you think you have everybody fooled with your religiosity? What's this, what's this new phrase? Um, uh, 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 oh, I had it right on the tip of my tongue. Um, I'll, I'll come back to it. Uh, oh my goodness, I, I hate when I do that. Uh, he's, you fooled people with this um, sense that you are more religious and more upright and, and more holy and clean than everybody else, but you haven't fooled God. God knows your hearts. And he, and, and he says this, what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now I want to repeat that. What is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. I want that laminated, and I want that posted, and I want that placarded. I want that on t-shirts, I want that on bumper stickers, and for everyone to make that their life verse. What is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. I want my kids to memorize that and keep it on their tongues. I want you young people to keep that on your tongues as well. Jesus doesn't say that God has a slightly different take on things than, than the world does. The, the world of unbelieving men, they have certain ideas, and, 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 and Jesus has just a slightly different angle on that. You know, whatever, whatever pagans and unbelievers pursue is fine. God just wants to nuance it a little, you know, just, just tweak it a little. That's not what he says. Jesus says this, whatever they lust after, whatever they're pining for, whatever they climb over each other to get to, Whatever is cool to unbelieving uh, men and pagans, whatever they think earns them a good reputation, whatever makes them righteous in the eyes of men, that's the word I was thinking of, virtue signaling. What? You've heard this, right? Where people say things to show just how righteous and upright and clean and holy they are, uh, right? The Pharisees were the first virtue signal, uh, signalers, right? Uh, whatever, whatever they virtue signal, what, whatever, whatever earns them a great reputation in the, right, in, in the eyes of men, whatever that is, whatever that is, God calls an abomination. That's where the bullseye of his judgment rests on the cool and the, and the hip and, the, and, and whatever they're pining for and lusting after. 
So first he says to the Pharisees that everything that you value is just a bunch of hell. Uh, whatever you value is just a bunch of pageantry to go to hell in. That's what it is. And the second volley, that's his first volley. The second volley is this complex statement about the law and the prophets and the coming of the kingdom. The law and the prophets, he says, all the Hebrew scriptures were until John. They stood as the authority up until John the Baptist. And since John, since John the Baptist came, the kingdom of God has been preached and it's coming and you can't do anything to stop it. So, so if you think that you're on the side of the law and Jesus is doing this new weird thing that, that, you're, that you think he's on the side of and, and he's doing the new thing and that's kind of odd and weird, but we've got the old world and, and we're going to be fine in this. No, Jesus says, no, I, actually, I own the old world and the new world. I'm the king of both. And you Pharisees aren't actually in compliance with either the old world or the new world. But you unfaithful stewards better figure out how you're going to get in line and join the kingdom. And the third volley cuts right to the core of their rebellion and wickedness. He knows how they're making a mockery of God's law with their very low view of marriage and their casual divorces. One rabbi taught in the first century, by the time of the first century, there was one rabbi who was teaching that a man could divorce his wife if she spoiled his dinner. Another, another rabbi taught that uh, you could divorce your wife with no fault, no big deal, if, if you find a woman who's prettier than she is. You could, just, you could just leave her. You could just divorce your wife for that. Uh, this is the facade that they're putting up. This super righteousness behind this facade was this perverted hatred of women and their abuse of the marriage covenant. And so Jesus exposes their lust and their sick behavior by calling them a bunch of adulterers. Now, what Jesus says here in this one verse is not all that the Bible has to say about divorce. You know that Paul uh, uh, has a great deal to say about it. Jesus also says more in the, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. But this direct pointed statement here is aimed at these guys who are mocking him and rolling their eyes. He says this because this does apply to them. They have no biblical cause for their divorces and they and their marriages are indeed adulterous. So he hits them with these three things, one after another. And then when they're still reeling from these volleys, Jesus finishes with another parable. And we'll end the chapter uh, with this last parable. Verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, and nor can those from here there pass to us. And he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. 
And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now, if we had a, an adult Sunday school or an extended teaching time today, I would like to spend a lot of time in the, in the doctrine of hell and do a comprehensive study of, of eternal judgment. Um, but we can only spend a moment or two now. Jesus gives a, a critically important look here at life beyond the grave and spe- uh, specifically the places of judgment and blessing uh, through eternity and specifically even further than that, what that looked like before the crucifixion. It looked different before the crucifixion than after. But this is how things worked before the cross. There was a realm called Hades or Sheol, the place of the dead. Those who repented and believed and loved Yahweh ended up with Abraham in a place of rest. Those who live their own way and do not repent end up in a place of torment. And there is an unbreachable gulf between the two. Now, we all confess in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus, he descended into Hades after the cross. We, we confess that, and that's an ancient Christian testimony of what happens. We, where do we get that? Where do we get that Jesus descended into Hades? Well, we get it from Psalm 16, and we get it from Acts 2, that God didn't leave Jesus in Hades or Sheol, but that God resurrected him and, 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 and gave him life out of the grave and out of the place of the dead. What did Jesus tell the thief on the cross? He said, today you'll be with me in the presence of the Father. No, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus doesn't say, today we're going to heaven. He says, we're going to paradise. We're going to uh, the place of departed souls. Because after the cross, Peter and Paul tell us, Jesus had other work to do after the cross. He had another job to do. First Peter 3 and 4 says, after Jesus was put to death, he went and he preached to the souls in prison, to them that were dead. Ephesians 4 says this, that Jesus ascended after he descended into the lower parts of the earth and led captivity captive. So, so here's the picture that we get. After Jesus uh, gives up the spirit on the cross, he goes down to Hades. He goes down to the city of death and he rips the gate of Hades off of its hinges. And he goes in and preaches the gospel to Abraham and John the Baptist and Jacob and David and Solomon and Elijah and Elisha and Samson. Uh, he preaches, he, he, he gets them all caught up on what just happened, you know, because you can't go into the presence of God and stand there without a sacrifice for sin. Jesus is that sacrifice. And until that sacrifice was made, they are in Abraham's bosom. They're, they're safe and they're comfortable and they're at rest and they're at peace, but they're not in the presence of the Father. And so what 1 Peter tells us and what Ephesians tell us in Psalm 16 and Acts 2 teach is that Jesus went to Hades and then he, he leads Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and John the Baptist and the rest of the Old Testament faithful. He leads them out and ransoms them from the power of the grave, ransoms them from the power of Sheol, and he ushers them up into the Father's presence. So now on this side of the cross, that's, that's the other side of the cross, on this side of the cross... When you die trusting in the Lord Jesus, the angels don't take you to Abraham's bosom. Uh, Lazarus in this parable, the angels took him to Abraham's bosom. But now the angels take you to the presence of Jesus. 
The story is the same, however, if one dies in unbelief. That, that story hasn't changed at all. Hell is a real place. It is a place of torment. It is a place of separation from God. It is a place required by the justice of God. We, we are uncomfortable with and are queasy, made queasy by and don't like the idea of hell or eternal torment because we have such a casual view of sin. We, we don't think of sin as what it actually is. We think it's a a mistake, or I could have done better, or maybe, maybe I, I might have done something different if I had a second chance. We don't think of sin as a colossally arrogant, rebellious act by something made of dirt. We're dirt bags, right? We're made from the dirt of the earth. We're, we're this, this cosmically small creature who, who, who per, we portray this and, 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 and enact this incredible rebellion against an infinite God. That, uh, that is also in the face of the fact that God has provided a just and suitable sacrifice and a covering for that sin in the death of his own son, Jesus. So it's haughty and it's conceited and it's arrogant and it's rebellious. When we reject the gift of Jesus, we say we don't need him. We don't want eternal life with him. So we get what we ask for, which is eternal death and separation in hell. Now, that's, that's what's contained in the background and in the, in the margins of this parable. But, but the primary purpose of this parable isn't for Jesus to give the Pharisees a doctrine of hell. What he's saying, they already have a doctrine of hell. What, he, what he's teaching them is that despite their religiosity, that's where they're headed. You know, they think hell is for the... That's for the outcasts. That's for the unholy. That's for those who don't follow our law. But Jesus says, no, no, in fact, you are the rich man in this parable. You are the wealthy man who is insulated by his riches. You don't have any care for anybody but yourself. You are, you are consumed with your riches. And, and here in this parable, we have that very same thing. We have a, a rich man who is insulated by his riches. He doesn't have to face the poor. He doesn't have any responsibility for the poor man who lays at the gate of his property. The man, Lazarus, Jesus said, would have been happy to have the crumbs that fell from his table. It doesn't say that he had the crumbs that fell from his table. It says he would have been happy to have the crumbs that fell from his table. Jesus also say the dogs come and lick his sores. This, these are not... Um, little, you know, shih tzus or little poodles. This is not little uh, dachshunds who come. Uh, people in Israel didn't keep pets. Pets were, I'm, I'm sorry, dogs. They didn't keep dogs. Dogs were unclean animals. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't keep them. If there were dogs roaming around the town, they were a nuisance. They were packs of wild dogs. And the dogs come and hassle and pester this poor man. When Lazarus dies, he doesn't get a burial. He doesn't get a funeral. But the angels carry him to the place of rest. They carry him to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also dies, but we read that he is buried. He gets a burial and he's taken to Hades where he can see across the gulf. He's taken to the place of torment where he sees Abraham and the poor man that he ignored. It's interesting what the rich man says. He says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Now, this is uh, ironic. Earlier, John the Baptist preached in Luke's gospel. He says, do not say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. God is able to raise up these stones as children to Abraham. Now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
And then just a few sentences later, John says, he who has two coats, let him share with one who has none. This man, this rich man, Lazarus, is an unfruitful tree. And yet he's calling Abraham his father. He has no fruits of repentance. He didn't, he didn't manage his riches in a godly way. The ax fell on this unfaithful tree, and now he's in hell. And hell hasn't changed his heart. He says, send Lazarus. Oh, wait a minute. You know his name? How do you know his name? You know his name, but you never helped him. And even in the torments of hell, he still wants to treat Lazarus like his errand boy. He says, send Lazarus to help me. Remember what the prophets Amos and Hosea said about the way that rich, the wealthy treat people? They treat them like property. They treat them, they depersonalize them. They, they treat them like possessions. Doesn't this rich man understand his position, his situation? He's in no position to boss Lazarus around. This rich man is still in rebellion. See, this is where the prodigal son was headed also if he didn't repent. His waste of riches led him to the pig pen and he repented there. But this man's misuse of his riches only hardened his heart and he's still arrogant. The rich man speaks again. And you think, well, maybe now he'll understand what's going on. Maybe, maybe something will soften his heart. And then he says, send Lazarus to my brothers so that they can be warned and they can avoid this place of torment. If, if Lazarus can't come over here and help me, maybe we'll send him on another mission for me. Maybe he'll, he'll go do this. This is the man, rich man, Lazarus. This, this is the man who you had no time for in life who you never helped. This is the man you ignored. You didn't give him a crust of bread, but now you want to send him on errands. You know, can't you just leave him alone now? Can't you just let him rest now at this point? Well, Abraham answers the rich man, uh, your brothers, they've got Moses and they've got the prophets. What else do they need? They've got the Bible. Let them read it and understand it. And the rich man says, that's, that's not enough. If someone comes back from the dead, maybe then they will repent. And Abraham says, no, no, actually the Bible is enough. Moses and the prophets is enough. And if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be persuaded even if one rises from the dead. Do you, do you catch what's being said by Abraham here? The reason people don't believe is not because they lack information. It's not because they haven't seen enough miracles. It's not, it's not because they, they haven't seen somebody come back from the dead. The reason they don't believe is because their hearts are idolatrous and they willfully close up their eyes and ears to the truth. They desire all the wrong things. They worship all the wrong things. Unbelief is not penetrated by argument alone, though we must make a defense of the gospel. Absolutely. We must defend the scriptures. Unbelief is not penetrated by argument alone. Unbelief is not penetrated by miracles either. Pharaoh showed us that. The miracles that God worked through Moses only hardened Pharaoh's heart. Jesus and the apostles show us that, that, that miracles don't, don't mop up unbelief. And even if one comes back from the dead, Abraham says, which, oh, by the way, that happened. And is there still unbelief in the world? You bet. You bet. Even if one comes back from the dead, they won't believe. Even if one comes back from the dead, the idolater will not let go of his idols. The rich man then and today goes to hell convinced that he is invincible and his riches insulate him against judgment and that he can get away with anything he wants. These two parables are pointed at the rulers of the old world. And Jesus tells these parables in the audience, in the hearing of his disciples concerned that the new bosses of the new age don't behave like the old bosses of the old age. 
Jesus has set us up. Jesus has set the church up as stewards, the managers of the new world. And we have to be very sure that we're not just repeating bad pharisaical management practices because you and I, as I said, are unbelievably astronomically wealthy. You are rich. Every one of you, you are rich, richer than anybody the world has ever seen before. And we all need to get a grip on the fact that there is a, there is a Christian way of ruling and there is a Christian way of possessing this wealth that God has given us. As followers of Jesus, we don't add burdens. We don't add expectations. We don't try to control or manipulate people. We, like the steward, like Jesus, we release people from their burdens. We use our wealth as a blessing to, to ease burdens of other people. And we must refuse to be poisoned by our wealth. Don't start believing that we are invincible. We don't buy the idea that we're really crafty and we'll never get caught because our wealth helps us cover our tracks or hide our sins. And I'm talking about not only money, wealth, again, information, leisure, all of these ways that we're, technology, all these ways that we're wealthy. We remember that if there's something that the world is really excited about, that's very likely the thing that God hates and the thing that God is going to judge. We don't use our wealth and our leisure and our information and our technology to celebrate the thing that God hates. I've heard a lot of people confess sins over the past 20-something years of ministry. There's been all kinds of things that I've heard confessed in, in confidence and in private. But I can't recall anybody ever saying to me, you know what I really struggle with? You know what really drags me down, my besetting sin? I worship, I worship wealth. I worship money. That's my, that's my problem. My wealth has a grip on my heart. And when I read the scriptures and when I hear the condemnations of the rich and I, and I hear the wicked ways they behave in the scriptures, when I hear Jesus tell parables about rich men, that cuts me right to the heart because I know that's talking about me. I'm the rich man in the parable. You know what? I've never heard anybody ever confess that. I've never heard that said. I've never heard it. You know what else? None of these disciples and none of these Pharisees that day None of them probably said that either. None of them were thinking, you know, I'm really convicted by this. And I feel like I'm the rich man in this parable or that, or they were thinking that day, you know, I'm really feeling convicted of this sin. And Jesus comes and, and preaches and say, yeah, that's me. That's why Jesus is telling him the story. Satan is a deceiver and he deceives us into thinking we don't have a problem. The problem is always bigger than the problem itself. The problem is that we don't know that we have a problem. That's why we fail to repent and change. Jesus tells these parables and he gives us this instruction to hold a mirror up to us to say, look and see, is this showing you something about yourself? Is this, is this demonstrating something to you? Do you think that all that's important is for you and your kids to just make as much money as you can before you die and that's all that's important? That the whole purpose of education, the whole purpose of, of working is to just get as much as you can and, and be, be completely insulated and live a life where you never have to face any hardship whatsoever? Is that, is that, the, point? Is that the point of life? Is that all that there is to you? Is that, is that what you see? If that does reveal to you something about yourselves and ourselves, the only response is to say, Lord, deliver me. 
Deliver me from my worship of things. Deliver me from my pursuit of anything that is an abomination to you. Deliver me from finding my comfort and my satisfaction and my rest in my status or position or leisure or wealth and not in you. Deliver me from treating people like objects, means to my own end. Deliver me from burdening others instead of releasing them from burdens. Focus all my affections on you. Focus my affections on how I can please you. Teach me, Lord, to love what you love. That's that's the response that Jesus is looking for. And I pray that as you meditate on these things, that, that if you do see yourself in this mirror, that you pray that prayer. Let's go to the Lord now. Father, we ask you by your Holy Spirit to convict us of all those things in us that need to change and all the ways we must grow. Father, uh, we very casually look at the behaviors and attitudes of people who lived 2,000 years ago and we feel so disconnected from it. That's not us. Uh, couldn't possibly, we couldn't possibly act like that or think that way. Uh, Father, your, your word is timeless and, and you have taught us these things and said these things to us for us to consider right now. So Father, by your Holy Spirit, we humbly ask for you to correct and change and deliver us from these sinful, wicked behaviors. Father, guide us again by your Holy Spirit into all goodness and truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And now we continue worshiping the Lord our God by bringing to him his tithe and our offerings. <laughs> 